Well, good morning, Redemption Church. How are you guys doing this morning? You are amazing is what you are. I love you guys. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for today, and I thank you for the opportunity we have to be looking at this particular portion of the word that you've given us. You've given us many different illustrations, many different stories, many different individuals that we can look at. And, and as we go into this particular series, we look at something that I think is directly important for our time. I, I even slow down right now as I pray um, because I think of just kind of the, the, the way things sit right now, the way things are developing within our particular corner of the world. I, I think more than ever, uh, this particular little chunk of your word is important. And I, and I pray that over the next several weeks and months as we go through this, that we will slow down, that we will pay attention, that we will uh, long to be that which you've saved us to be. And so I pray for a joy. I pray for a hope. I pray for an anticipation. But I also pray for a sobriety. I pray for a clarity. I pray for a sense of determination. I pray that we really are prepared and longing to endure. And so I pray that you will anoint us as your church in a very special way for this, I think, very special series so that we might see that you are our blessed hope. Not the things of this world, not the things that we often put our stock in, our security in, that you are our security and you, in fact, are our hope. We love you. We thank you. We come to you now in your awesome name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, if you are running analog, you can open to the book of 1 Peter. If you're rolling digital, it's three taps and you're there, all right? So it's real simple to get to 1 Peter when you're running digital. But for those of us that are analog like myself, it'll take us a little bit of time. So open up to the book, the epistle or the letter of 1 Peter. This is toward the end of your New Testament, toward the back. Uh, this is among what we call the general epistles, right? So you're familiar with Paul's letters, and Paul's letters are unique in that, for the most part, they're written to an individual church or an individual person. Uh, the general epistles, which are James all the way through to Jude, those are kind of generic. They're written to broadly dispersed groups or even sometimes groups we don't even know. So we call them the general epistles. And Peter is among those general epistles. Now, uh, as I thought about getting into 1 Peter, I, I reflected on something that you would think has nothing to do with 1 Peter, which is Thanksgiving in my family. All right? Uh, and, and here's why. Uh, every Thanksgiving it rolls in, and the women in the family, they begin to divvy out what their cooking responsibilities are going to be. So my wife, her sister, uh, my mother-in-law, they kind of figure out who's going to do what and who's going to make what. And one of the things that Ellen makes every year that's sort of the clamored for thing are, are these, these rolls, these amazing, like the size of like footballs, rolls. You know, they're these huge, big, fluffy rolls and you just slather them and butter and there's like a thousand calories per roll or something. They're amazing, right? They're all nice and fluffy and everybody loves these golden brown rolls. And yet every once in a while she'll make a batch and they don't rise, right? So it's just this flat chunk of dough in the bottom and, and she's like, I can't cook this. I'm like, no, I love that kind. I love those because they're dense and I mean, they're like just like a brick that you're going to eat, you know? 
And I love that. That's why I slather them in butter so I can force it down my gullet. So I'm like, that's perfect because I love that dense kind of thing. In fact, when I was an intern back in Spokane, I worked at a place called Yolks Pack and Save. That's the grocery store you want to go to. Um, Yolks Pack and Save. And and I would uh, take a lunch break, and because I was young and stupid, I would buy an entire French loaf of bread and I would break it open, and I would scoop out the innards, right? And I would ball it up into a ball of gluten goodness, right? And just eat the ball, right? Dense, man, dense. I'd wash it down with Mountain Dew. Ridiculous. Um, so gluten ball, Mountain Dew, and then I would chase it with a Hostess cupcake. I mean, this is youthful folly, right? So I love dense stuff, and I say that and how it unionizes with 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a dense, dense book of the Bible. It is dense like my gluten ball. It is dense like those unrisen uh, things that Ellen makes at Thanksgiving. I, I love it for that reason. In fact, when you go through 1 Peter, it's only five chapters long, uh, but it is dense with truth. It is dense with encouragement. And it is dense with commandment, all right? And so it is one dense book. And here's the thing about dense things. If you're going to eat dense things, you must eat them with small bites and you must chew a lot, right? And so with that, that's exactly what we're going to be doing with First Peter, all right? So we're not going to whip through this thing in five weeks over five chapters. We're going to slow this down. We're going to be in First Peter all the way till June. So we're going to be hanging out in this book for a little while. And there's good reason for that. Because I do believe it is so dense that we want to really slow down. That we want to understand what it's saying to us. And, and part of that is uh, to give you a little bit of backstory as to why we're doing First Peter. Um, this was not originally in my plan. All right, so uh, traditionally, I think I've shared this before, I try to be pretty planned out with what series things we're going to do. And, and originally, we were going to be starting Galatians today. And I was very excited about Galatians, and I was ready to go, and everything was looking great. And, and then a few months back, uh, it just was really laid on my heart to start reading through First Peter over and over again. Like, like God was saying, I, I have something that you really need to start picking up on in this particular section of the Bible. And, and part of what I think leads to that is... Uh, 1 Peter is a book written to Christians who are just starting to feel the pressure and pinch of opposition in their culture that is escalating quickly. Right? So, matter of fact, I was reading a commentator on 1 Peter just a few weeks back, and he says, you know what, and this was written in 1994, he says, most people don't preach 1 Peter because the church isn't persecuted in the United States. Christians are winning, to quote Charlie Sheen. Um, so he says nobody really pays attention because First Peter is written to a group of Christians who are losing. Who are on the downside within their culture. Who the culture is increasingly against them. He goes, but we don't preach that because we're the moral majority. We're in charge. We are the largest voting block and the most control group in the country. He says nobody preaches First Peter. But a lot has changed since 1994 when that commentator first wrote that book. And I think we know this to be true. I think we know that we're feeling more of the pressure, more of the pinch, more of the critical eye. Uh, we're, we're sensing a little bit more where we're characterized in certain ways that may not even be true of us. We, we sense that there are ways that people describe us or view us where even increasingly we're, we can be seen as a, a threat. 
even if we're not threatening, we could be seen as dangerous, though we're, we're not trying to in, in any way be dangerous. It's just this really interesting time. And so from all of that, I, I realize that First Peter is profoundly practical to where we find ourselves within our culture today. Now, I'm not saying that because I want to be a fear monger. I don't believe Peter is a fear monger at all. In fact, what Peter's going to say is, man, have hope. You have grace. Have courage. Don't worry. God's in control. This is for your good. I mean, he's very encouraging throughout. But at the same time, he's very sober when it comes to the reality of things. And so that's why I'm saying we're going to kind of slow things down and try to take this book in for our good, for our joy, for our hope. That's the purpose behind it. So, today, like I said, we're going slow. How slow are we going? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it starts off by saying, Peter, comma. Stop right there. All right. Um, and I'm throwing the comma in so you feel better about it. All right? I'm not even going to address the comma. All right? So, uh, Peter, that's how far. Two syllables, one word. That's how far we're going today. Good for us. All right. So, but, but here's why. I, I think it's important, if you're reading a letter from somebody, to understand the person who wrote you the letter, right? To understand their background, because what I love about First Peter is it's written by the guy that we seem to know the most about. Jesus is the number one character we know about in the New Testament. Peter is definitely number two. Paul's probably number three. And I think we all appreciate Peter because he seems very much like us. Right? We're going to just kind of look at a survey of his life today. And, and I think why he will resonate is because he's that guy that we identify with. We go, man, he struggled with faith, I struggled with faith. He was impetuous, sometimes I'm impetuous. He knew what was true, but he didn't always get behind it. And I can sometimes be like that as well. I think he resonates with us because we identify with him. And so I want us to understand how this book is composed. In other words, I want us to understand the guy that composed the book much later in life. This is where he's a sage, right? Matter of fact, this is getting really close to the time where he's going to die, real close to that time. So he's spent a lot of years growing and developing, and that's when we realize that we grow at a certain rate, which usually isn't overnight, and that's why I love learning about Peter and then coupling it to this book. So we're going to look at all of that. The other reason, like I said, I really like First Peter is because uh, it's raw and it's, it's visceral to the problems of life. And it's telling us, in the midst of pain, point to God. In the midst of suffering, don't lose your hope. In the midst of opposition, realize the story is already written and you should not lose your bearings just because of the opposition. All of that is true to this letter. And you see that played out through the life of Peter. Now again, as he writes this, I believe he's also writing knowing that he didn't always do it well. So he's not in an ivory tower saying, this is how good Christians do it. I believe he's on the ground saying, you know what, I've lived this whole Christian life, and I I did it well sometimes, I did it poorly sometimes. But here's what we can all take courage in, right? That's the heart behind this writer. And so to dig into Peter a little bit more, I want you to flip toward the front of your New Testament and go to the book of John chapter 1. We're going to be bouncing through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John this morning to look at Peter. Uh, And so if you would like to keep up with that, you can. If not, we'll have some of the verses on the screen. But I think it's always good to get familiar with where some of these things are in the Bible that you have before you. So I'm going to John chapter 1. I'm taking us there because I think sometimes we don't understand when Peter first met Jesus. 
right? I had somebody actually email me last week, and they were asking me something out of Smash Bible, and they said, so when Jesus came down the beach and said, follow me, that's pretty shocking. They don't even know him, and they suddenly decide to follow him. I said, well, that's not the first time they met. There was a time earlier, and it's here in the Gospel of John chapter 1. So to set the stage, John the baptizer, the first Baptist of the Bible, uh, he was gathering a lot of disciples, right? All these guys were following him, learning from him, everything else. And one day, as they're all with John, Jesus comes onto the scene, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God. And two of the disciples that were John's disciples start hanging out with Jesus. And they're learning some stuff, and he's saying things they've never heard, and man, they can feel it in their bones. It's like, this guy is different. This guy might be the one. And so there then in verse 40, it says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, right? So he first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah. Like, this could be the guy that we've all been longing for, right? You have to come and look. So it says, he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. But you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, I love this, all right? First meeting, right? So again, you understand it isn't on the beach doing their net thing. This is earlier. This is actually substantially earlier. There's a good chance that Jesus hung around that area for a while, that Peter got to know Jesus for a while before that invitation comes, that we'll get into in a minute. Um, But their first meeting, Jesus nicknames him, which is funny because this is what dudes do, right? Dudes nickname other dudes. You know, you meet somebody, hey, how's it going? What's your name? So-and-so. I'm going to call you the Rockinator. You know, like, like because that, that's what happens, because that's what Peter means. In Greek, it means rock. Aramaic, Cephas, just means rock. He's nicknaming him the rock, right? And this is, again, what guys do. It's kind of this sense of relationship. And it's funny, because I got to wonder if Andrew's standing back there going, you're naming him what? I grew up with this guy. There's a lot of names that I've called him. Never. The Rock, right? He's a bull in a china shop. Call him the bull. That would be great. He's temperamental. He's difficult. His mouth is in the shape of a Birkenstock. He's always shoving his foot in. Like, like call him Birkenstock mouth. That would be awesome, right? Call him Kanye. He's difficult. You know, like, <laughs> San Andreas, you pick your name. The Rock. Why something that represents stability? Maybe Rock Head. Even that would fit. But why The Rock? Here's the deal. Jesus doesn't see Simon, son of John, as he is, but as he will be. He doesn't see him as he is. He takes Simon Peter where he's at, but he's going to move him to where he wants him to be. So in that sense, he says, I'm going to name you now what you're going to be in the future, what you're going to be looked at as you will be the rock that everybody is looking at in the context of the apostolic ministry. And see, that's what I love about what Jesus does with Peter. I believe he does the same thing with all of us. Once we're in Christ, he sees us as we're going to be. He takes us as we are, but he sees us as we're going to be. And everything is about that movement in our lives, that development and growth, so that we become more of what he made us for. And so that's what he's going to do with Peter. And so because of that, then when I jump to Matthew chapter 4, it makes a lot more sense that there's been this interaction, that Jesus says, I'm going to call you Peter, you're going to be a rock. They've had all that interaction, 
And then in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, who gave him the name Jesus, which means they had a relationship, and Andrew, his brother, and they were casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So immediately, no wonder immediately, they've already been exposed, they've already been hearing the teaching, so immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Now, Peter and Andrew have a dad, which is John. It's probably a family business that they own, a fisherman. And I've got to wonder what John's thinking. Like, uh, fellas, why are you leaving the family business? Uh, we're going to follow that guy. I mean, the guy with no education and no home and, like, itinerant preacher guy? Yeah, we're going to go with that guy. I mean, it's like they went to their dad and said, uh, we're joining the band. You know, like, like we're going to go do this thing that just seems crazy to go do. We're going to just go follow this guy because we think he's the one. But that's what they're going to do. And when Jesus says, follow me, that is a loaded phrase. That's not just as simple as uh, just, hey, man, uh, grab your bags. Just come with me. He's saying, I want you to know what I know. I want you to do what I do. I want you to act as I act. I want you to think as I think. I want you to own the priorities that are my priorities. It is this idea of true discipleship, true learning, true, truly being a student of every part of Jesus. And the goal is to be like the teacher then. And so this is a lifelong journey. At this point, Peter is setting into a lifelong journey, not just a couple of years. Because it's going to take a lifetime and beyond to really learn what it means to follow Jesus. And so Peter begins to follow. And, and soon enough, by Matthew chapter 10, you don't have to turn there, but by Matthew chapter 10, it's clear that his demonstration of being the rock is, is, is sort of prominent. Because in Matthew 10, it says, Jesus set aside the apostles, and it says, first was Peter. Right? So the very first of the apostles, in fact, if it always, you see it break down, it's typically there's Peter, and then Peter, James, and John, and then the rest of the twelve. There was a sense in which, again, they were all equals, but Peter was the first among all of those equals. Because again, his designation, because of how Jesus was raising him up, and how Jesus was developing him. And, and Peter really shows some great resolve in that position. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, we see a great scene that starts in verse 13, right, where they've been traveling around, different people are getting perspectives of Jesus, and so then Jesus asks his disciples in verse 13, well, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, or perhaps Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Yeah, people have all kinds of opinions, but but how do you nail me down? And so Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered me, He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjuna, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He says, And so I tell you, you are Peter. You are the rock. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When you just take that and you take all of it, you go, man, this guy Peter is on a roll in the positive. Right? His nickname, The Rock. He drops everything to follow Jesus. He's the first of the apostles. He's the first of the apostles to say, you are the Christ. And it's not because he's super smart. It's because God has divinely revealed that to him. Peter is running on point, man. I mean, if you're just looking at this uh, right now, you might say, ah, 
that's not a lot like me. I think Peter really had it going on. Well, well, here's the deal I want you to understand. Uh, I highlight these four really solid things about Peter because they're about the only four solid things about Peter. Right? Here's the deal about Peter and um, all the apostles. Um, They're all a group of what I call bless your hearts. Right? So I'll give you a reference. So in Acts chapter 4, Peter and some buddies get arrested. And they go before the religious officials, and they're scratching their heads, the religious officials. are like, how are these guys like, doing all of these things? They're just common men. And in Greek, that word common or common men is idiotes, where we get the word idiots, right? So in essence, they're saying, how are these idiots pulling off this stunt? How, how are these idiots doing this? Now, here's what I agree with. I think they're idiots a lot of the time. And and if you really want to articulate an idiot, you you say, bless your heart, right? So, uh, your child comes out wearing a hideous shirt, and what do you say? Oh, bless your heart. What you're saying is, idiot, right? That's bless your heart. You you see a woman at the mall, and she's dressed 40 years younger than she is, and you say, oh, bless her heart. You're saying idiot. That's what you're saying, right? So, they're a group of bless your hearts, and Peter is the king, of the bless your hearts. All right? So he is that. And so there are many events in his life where you go, oh, bless your heart, with him. In fact, no sooner does he say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, I'm going to build my church. And you're going to run point on that endeavor that immediately Peter sticks his foot in his mouth. And Jesus calls him Satan. Bless your heart. Right? So, right? And, and that's what happens. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to die as a part of this routine to get us to this place. Peter's like, nope, it never be. And he says, get behind me, Satan. A little while later, Peter is rebuked because he has doubt instead of having faith. In fact, Peter is repeatedly rebuked because he suffers from doubt more than faith. All the apostles are. There's another scene where Jesus comes walking on the water, and Peter actually gets out of the boat and starts to walk. Which I always think about this, I'm like, if you're already doing it's like the first step is the big one. If you go like, ho, 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 right? And you start going, it's only when you sink later, you're like, wait, dude, you were doing it, man. You were doing it. Why did you, why did you start to sink when you actually were already doing it? Well, it's because it's he struggles with faith. There's a time later where um, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and wants to follow, and, and Jesus says, here's what it's going to take, and the guy walks away. And Peter pipes in and says, well, what do I get for following you? I'm like, bless your heart. Don't say that, right? Don't say that. There's all sorts of things, right? There's this one particular scene where Jesus is meeting with the disciples in the upper room, and he begins to wash their feet. And he comes to Peter, and Peter says, no, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. He's like, all right, then give me a bath, man. You know, like, bless your heart. You're not getting this, right? Right? So he's that guy. He doesn't always get it. He isn't always thinking. He he jumps into things too quickly. Sometimes he doesn't want to jump into something quickly enough. I mean, he's got a lot of baggage in there. This is why I love Peter. I appreciate him because I understand him. He's had a lot of these little things, but this this isn't the big one. Right? The, the, The big one comes later. The big one comes in Luke chapter 22. In Luke 22... Here's your, here's your scene. It's 
the last night of the last week of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And so uh, he's come to Jerusalem. Everything, uh, as far as pressure, has intensified. It comes to this final evening. He's got his disciples in the upper room where he's sharing with them and has washed their feet and made this investment. Right? So it's a very profound time. It's very powerful. And it's in the midst of that, even where like, Jesus has washed their feet, they actually have an argument about who's the greatest. Like I said, bless all their hearts, all right? They're all kind of incomplete, like all of us. But in verse 31 of Luke chapter 22, after all of this has transpired, Jesus comes to Peter, and he calls him by his original name. He says, Simon, Simon. I mean, this is tender. This, is, this isn't like judgmental. This isn't shaking his head. This is coming alongside. I have no doubt. I think it's a, a it's tuck-in moment. I believe it's, come here, Simon. Come here. I, I, I need to talk to you. I need to let you know something. He says, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Satan demanded to have you. You've stood out. You know, I, I, I've named you the rock. You're the first among the apostles. You have declared me to be Christ. Yeah, you've made a lot of bumbles along the way, but Satan knows you are dangerous. And so he's asked, demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. He wants to take the rock and crush him into dust. And so Satan knows exactly what he's doing. He wants to sift you like wheat, he says, but I have prayed for you. Which is interesting to me. If I'm Peter, I'm like, uh, or why don't you just cast the devil away you know like like what, what do you mean prayed for me well here, here's going to be the thing and, and peter's going to tell us later in his letter to us um trials pressure suffering attacks from the enemy or from culture they will be for your good if you receive them right so this is the first true great pressing test for the rock Satan has demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you. I've not prayed that it doesn't happen. I have prayed for you so that when it happens, there will be what you need. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Right? And I, I love that because I, I could just see Jesus praying over Peter in this regard because he knows he's like, man, I've seen where he's had it and then lost it. I've seen him on the waves until he looked away. I've seen him in different environments where he's dumbfounded that they couldn't cast out a demon. And I had to tell him again, it's faith, it's faith, it's faith. I'm praying for you, Peter. I love you enough. I know you can do this. I'm praying for your faith that it doesn't fail even though you will says, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, notice Jesus is already in the business of restoration. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So he outlines the whole thing. Peter, here's how it's going down, man. Satan has demanded you, and you're basically going to fail. But I have prayed for you that when you get your head screwed back on straight again, you will go and make the investment into those who come after you. I love the scene. So how does Peter take this news? Like anyone named the rock. It says, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He says, we're not messing around here, all right? I am the tower of apostolic power, man. I am 
ready, I'm poised, I'm going to go. Yeah, James and John, like I get those guys, sons of thunder, all noise. They don't, you know, like I can see him starting to point, you know, Bartholomew, he sucks his thumb at night. You know, I don't know what he's, you know, going to say. Thomas, he's a doubter, but not me. I'm not going to give in. And Jesus is just blunt. He says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Not once, not twice, three. In, in hours, in a span of a small amount of time, you're going to deny me. And I'm sure Peter's still like, no way, that's not happening. And then Jesus says, we need to go pray. And I'm wondering, I've always wondered, like, what's in Peter's mind as they're going off to pray? Was he just, like, brooding? and like, I'm not going to do this. He says, I'm going to give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to go to jail if I have to. Right? I'm sure he's just, like, just going, this is appalling that he thinks I'm going to sell him out. But where the proof is in the pudding is no sooner do they show up to pray, he goes from brooding to snoring, right? Like, like that's what happens. It's like, let's go pray. Yeah, let's go. You know, I'm not going to give you a minute. Go to sleep, though. You know, so he starts sleeping. And Jesus is at this point of just great anguish. Great anguish. And in the same way, this is Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter has, or Jesus has to come and say, pray three times. Right? There's this pattern of threes that start to emerge. Right? And, 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 and Peter's just not getting it. He says, Jesus was just a stone throw away, and Peter doesn't get it. The rock is over there, a stone throw away, and he doesn't get it. I always wonder, too, if it says a stone throw away because Jesus tried. Like, wake up! So, that's about a stone throw away. Yep, and he didn't wake up. So, Peter's sawn logs. And then the scene comes. They come to arrest Jesus and it's interesting because in the scene, um, when, when everybody comes in to, to, to kind of take Jesus, uh, the disciples say, should we fight? Right? That's the question of all of them. But then there's one that just says, ah, man, I'm grabbing my sword. And busts out the sword, goes Frodo on one of the people that has come, and takes off an ear. Which I'm like, it's a good thing he's a fisherman. You know what I mean? Like, like if he was a butcher, that guy's dead. It's a fisherman with a sword. Not dangerous. It's like me with an instrument. It's just not safe. So, um, and, and, and so he does this. And, and he's just, again, it's that impetuous thing in Peter. And, and it's funny, actually, if you read the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't say that it was Peter that did this. They just say one of the disciples, right? But by the time John writes his gospel, they're all dead, and I think he's like, okay, I can rat him out. Finally, it was Peter. All right. We all kind of anticipated, though. It's probably Peter. Yeah, it's Peter, right? And he does this, and in that moment, Jesus says, stop it. Enough of this. And it's there that Peter and the others suddenly realize that all of what they thought it was going to be is not what it's going to be. They thought that Jesus was going to be a certain type of political leader, and he was going to establish a reign and a rule and a realm where they were the top dogs. No wonder they're arguing at the, at the dinner table about who's going to be the greatest, right? They're thinking, this is all about us having our vindication. This is all about us being on top. This is all about us having the strength that everybody must bow to, and now they realize in an instant that nothing that Jesus has been doing is going to validate all of their wishes and dreams and desires. This is a completely different game plan between Jesus and the apostles. Totally different. And so from that it says they scatter and they hide and Jesus is arrested and Jesus is led away to the high priest's house. But what's interesting about that in Luke chapter 22, 
and verse 54. It says, they seized him and they led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. So go back to earlier things. You're going to be the rock. All right, I'm the rock. Come and follow me. I will follow you. You are the Christ. I confess you. I will never doubt you. I will never deny you. If I have to go to jail, I'm going to stay with you. Oh, wait, now I might lose something. Oh, wait, now I'm at risk. Oh, my life is being threatened in some way. Now I'm going to follow at a distance. That's sometimes what Christians are tempted to do too. Right? We go, I, I love Jesus. I want Jesus. I need Jesus. Oh, wait, now I'm going to maybe suffer for uh, quoting Jesus, believing in Jesus, adhering to Jesus. I I'm going to follow him, but at a distance. He's there, and I believe in him, but I don't want to do anything that gives me too much association with him. Otherwise, I'll be seen as really close to him, like really following him. I'd rather follow him at a distance. So Peter follows at a distance, and it's there in that scene in the house of the high priest. The courtyard is considered inside the house that he's there. And a servant girl comes along and says, well, aren't you with the man that they just brought in? And he says, woman, I do not know him. Right? So Peter isn't denying Jesus to a palace official, a Roman guard, a, uh, some religious figure. It's a servant girl that's got Peter shaking in his sandals. So then a little later, someone else saw him. And they said, are you not among them? And he says, man, I'm not. I don't know what you're talking about. Then still another insisted, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. And then in verse 60 he says, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Other versions it says he began to swear, and, and, and just he's just coming uncorked. I don't know him, I don't know him. Damn it, I said I don't know him. I mean, this is how intense Peter's becoming. And no sooner do the words sputter out of his mouth, it says, and immediately when he was still speaking... The rooster crowed. God's lie detector, man. The denial detector goes off. And it says in verse 61, this is only in Luke's gospel, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Right? So we, we think sometimes that they're massively distanced. No, they're close. It's across a courtyard. Maybe he sees Jesus through a doorway. And so you think, here's Jesus knowing the scene, He's already called this one, and he sees Peter, and, and how much he can hear Peter, I don't know, but here's Peter, he's going to be flailing, and I don't, I don't know, and I don't, you know, and then suddenly their eyes lock. No wonder it says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. It was total failure, total failure. And so Jesus, we know the story was um, crucified, buried, everybody thinking he's been left for dead. And I'm wondering about that Saturday even. I mean, just, just forget everybody else. Just think about Peter. And here, here's this guy, the, 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 the main companion, that, that basically the, the last time he sees Jesus is as denial comes out of his mouth. I mean, he's just going to be wrecked, just internally destroyed, depressed beyond measure. But then on Sunday morning, something really amazing happens. And the women come back from going to anoint the body of Jesus, and they say, you won't believe it. 
He's not there. Uh, there was an angel, and, and, and there's this thing, and, and, and the tomb is empty. You have to see, and what does it say in Luke chapter 24? It says in verse 11, but these words seemed to them, the apostles, to be idle tales, and they did not believe the women. Bless their heart, right? Like, they don't believe it. I mean, they've walked with Jesus for three years. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him feed the masses. They've seen him walk on water. But this is just too big. And they don't believe it. Verse 12. It says, but. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Right? The others are like, no, this can't be. There's no way. But it's the rock. He's the one that says, I'm going. I have to see. I have to find out. And I believe a lot motivates that. When you have failed somebody that you love, any chance to make it right, you want to make right. Any chance. And this is the chance. The resurrection isn't just an opportunity for newness of spiritual life for Peter. It's an opportunity for practical redemption. I failed him. I let him down. And now maybe perhaps he's there and I can make it right. Now, fast forward to John chapter 21. John chapter 21 picks up a third occasion where Jesus comes to the apostles and disciples in his resurrected form, right? And, and, and on this occasion, it's kind of interesting because there's, there, the other ones have been a little bit more different controlled, just kind of general, dealing with Thomas a little bit, that kind of thing. Um, this one is sort of unique because after these occasions, it's like, all right, your Lord has just risen from the dead. What are you going to go do now? They're like, we're going fishing. So they go fishing. And they're out in the boat fishing, and then suddenly a shadowy figure comes on the beach and says, hey, have you caught anything? And they're like, nope. And he's like, well, why don't you just take your nets and move them five feet across to the other side of the boat and throw it in on the other side? I'm sure they're like, brilliant. All right. Idiot on the beach. Or fisherman. What is he? He's a beach dweller. And then what happens? Nets are filled, start to overflow, pulling the boat to the side, and it seems that it's probably John who says, it's the Lord. It's not just somebody on the beach, it's the Lord Jesus on the beach, and it says then in verse 7, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, ooh, naked Jewish man, all right, so he's stripped for work, and he puts on his outer garment, and he threw himself into the sea. I mean, to me, that is so funny. It's like, you know, like, I got to jump in the water. I should put my shoes on first, right? Like, like he just throws it, puts clothes on, throws himself in the water, and starts to, like, lap it to the shore. I'm sure just, like, rowing the boat would get you there faster. But I love the impetuous spirit of Peter, right? He's desperate to connect with Jesus. He wants a personal interaction. He still has some unresolved business. And so he swims to the shore. He comes up to where Jesus is. And it's interesting. I love the scene. Here's Peter. He's been naked. He's wet. He's cold. He's shivering. He's exposed. And, and where does he come up next to? The very place where he first denied Jesus by a fire. I mean, it's iconic. It's iconic. Yeah, you denied me by a fire. And now I'm going to restore you, Peter, by a fire. And just as there was three denials and three prayers, there's going to be three questions and three commands. It says in verse 15 of John chapter 21, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, 
son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so he said, feed my lambs. Right? So this is a part of this restoration process. Right? Peter knows he's blown it. Peter knows that he wants to make things right. And so Jesus says, do you love me really more than these? If you do, you're, you're going to do what I ask you to do. It says in verse 16, then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, yes, you know that I love you. He says, all right, tend my sheep. It says in verse 17, then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It says Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time. I mean, this is all going back to the three denials. Peter knows what's going on. It's like the first one, yes, I love you. Oh, number two. Oh, here comes number three. Right? And so Peter is grieved because of his condition, grieved because of his decisions. And so he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. But I, there's a lot of things about the scene that I really love. One of the things I love is the fact that Jesus has already forgiven Peter. I don't think Peter's forgiven Peter, which is why he keeps taking him through, right? Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Okay, Peter, anchor yourself in what is true. You love me. I know you love me, right? On top of that, he says, I want you to take care of that which I most care about. In other words, Jesus doesn't penalize Peter. Almost the opposite. He says, all right, I know you blew it. You knew you blew it. I knew it was going to happen. I've prayed for you so that when you come out the other side, you would what? Encourage the brothers. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And then I love what it says there at the end of that little dialogue in verse 19. He goes right back to the beginning and he says, follow me. Follow me. Let's get back on track, Peter. Right? That's what grace is all about. Grace is not about us flogging ourselves and punishing ourselves and saying, I can't do this and I can't do that and I've blown it and I can never be used again. He says, that's not how it works, Peter. Yes, you've made some mistakes and that is going to be lesson learned so you can help others to not make the same mistakes. I want you to follow me. Move, go, do. And Peter does, man. You get into the book of Acts chapter 2. Man, Peter's all over it. He goes from this guy that was afraid and fled to a guy that gets up before everybody and preaches with boldness. He's the guy in Acts 4 and 5 who keeps getting busted by the authorities and says, I can't stop. I have to preach Jesus. I'm a changed man. He said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my people, care for my brethren. I'm not going to stop doing that now. And so he's on a roll, man, in Acts 4 and 5. You get to Acts chapter 10, he goes to the Gentiles. And he's kind of reluctant about that, but God uses him in a great way there. And you get to Acts 15, he helps to set policy for reaching out to the world, man. God uses Peter in great ways as he moves forward from that time on the beach in John 21. What is also true about Peter is that he, in the course of that time, will fail too. See, part of our temptation is to say, oh, man, so once he got his head screwed on straight, he was always good to go and always solid. No, he wasn't always solid. Years later, close to 20 years after these scenes, there's a time where he is meeting with some people, and Paul comes onto the scene, and 
Peter doesn't want to hang around with the Gentiles in front of the Jews because it looks bad. He's being a bigot. And, and, and Paul actually has to rebuke Peter to his face. He says, you're a hypocrite, man. You're saying it, but you're not living it. You're, you're doing one thing, but you're not doing the right thing. And so Peter is by no means a perfect guy, even after all of these events. He's human. He's human like us. But he grows, he develops, he matures, he keeps pressing forward, he keeps learning what it means to yield his life to Jesus more and more and more. And that takes him all the way through 1 Peter, and it takes him all the way through 2 Peter to this time where he fulfills what he promised Jesus way back in the day, which is, you know what, if I need to, I will go to prison and to death. See, eventually, Peter ends up in prison. And eventually, he is put to death for Jesus. And when he's put to death, he says, I am not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. And he chooses to be crucified upside down. Because he says, I, 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 I can't do it the same way he did. He is so much more worthy than I. That is how I would choose to die, upside down on a cross. Or he is so, so good in comparison to me. See, that, that, that is the trajectory of Peter's life. Those are the things that Peter experiences and the things that he does. And, and I believe as he continues to grow, he begins to understand more and more and more, not merely the forgiveness of grace, but the power of grace. And he understands what it means to live for Jesus, even in the face of opposition, to have hope even when it would be easy to despair to lose sight of things because you become myopic. I think he risked that at times, but then he would course correct and continue to grow again. No wonder at the end of his life, he writes the opening of 2 Peter, and he reminds all of us of this. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's his divine power that has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. He says, do you realize what you have? Do, do you realize how much power has been granted to you? Yes, you're going to struggle. Yes, you're going to be opposed. Yes, you're going to be discouraged. But realize what you have and live by that live by that. See, Peter can write that and testify to that because he experienced that. And that's what he wants for all of us. He wants us to know that power, to rely on that strength, to understand that grace, to stand in the hope that Christ has given for us. That is our calling. And so as we go through first Peter, as we make it past the comma, I pray that we will look at it with those eyes, that we will realize that, you know what, the same Peter that went through all of that, it's no different than the journey we have in Jesus too. And we have what Peter had. And God wants to grow us in those ways. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for our friend Peter. I thank you that, like I said, Peter is very much like us. He had a seasons of doubt, he had a seasons of frustration, he had a seasons of ego, he had a seasons of sin. And yet your power was working in him, always moving him forward, always having him kind of grow into that which you had named him, the rock. And I think about how you have named us as being 
in yourself, redeemed, more than overcomers, more than conquerors. I pray that we will always be growing into that which you've named us to. And Jesus, right now, as we get ready for our time of communion, I, I pray particularly that our heart and mind would dwell on, on what you have done. I mean, I think about um, the fact that it is through your sacrifice and through your resurrection that, that we can have hope, that we have life, that we are replete with second chances because of you. And so as we have the bread and have the cup, we, we, we acknowledge fully that you purchased that. We thank you for that. We thank you for your grace in your name.